God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the world, the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. It's good to see everyone as Jonathan was talking about groups and serving. I was reminded of this past week and my group at one point in time, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the group, most of our groups, groups that are right with God, there's tasty food and drink. The 11th commandment, by the way, is thou shalt not have group without something tasty to eat and drink. It's just part of it, right? And uh, so we were in that time where we were enjoying that, and I stepped out on the balcony. I'm over on the, uh, our group's over on the beach side, and, and uh, uh, or mostly beachside families are over there. And uh, the, on this particular uh, Wednesday, we were in a, a home, and it was on the beach, balcony, beautiful. The, sun, the moon was reflecting off the ocean. I had to take a picture of it, you know, and, and it was just gorgeous. And as I was standing out there on that balcony, I was reminded of many years ago when I was a pastor up in Amelia Island, uh, a similar balcony that I was standing on. About the same time of the year, it was a Christmas party that one of the ladies in our church was hosting. I believe that she and I might have been the only Christians at that dinner party, and it was filled with people who were influential in the city and in the Jacksonville area, and lots of wealth and lots of self-made you know, millionaires and people like this. And uh, when they found out I was a pastor, I was the odd man out at that party. And so it's interesting how no matter how much money they had or whatever position, they felt it necessary to in some way impress upon me how, how good they were and how they, would, they were confident that they would one day be in heaven because of how they, they obeyed the golden rule and they didn't harm the, the sea darters and, they, you know, and all the different rationalizations. And as we would interact, it was, it was really interesting because there was another lady there who went to a Christian church in the area, but as she began to talk, it was obvious she had no clue about the gospel. She had no tr- clue about what it meant to actually be a follower of Jesus Christ. And as she was putting forth her philosophy and everyone else was chiming in, it was, there was these common themes coming out of their mouths that, you know, that they, how they rejected the, the absolute truth of Christianity. And in fact, all ideologies, they, they would not accept any, uh, they were skeptical of any absolute truth claims made by Christianity or by other religious systems or philosophical systems. And essentially, they looked at it as if they were the arbiters of truth, that they determined their own truth. They determined their own reality and that there is actually no overarching truth system that has absolute claim on our lives. That was probably my most graphic face-to-face up to that point in time face-to-face encounter with what is known as postmodernism. 
Postmodernism has had effect, an effect upon the church, upon our society and our culture. There has been a wholesale abandonment, it seems, of this concept that there is a place in the universe where you can go for absolute truth. And that absolute truth is found in God's word and it's embodied in Jesus Christ. This idea is rejected. Instead, we have gone the opposite direction, the direction of situational ethics, the direction of determining for yourself what is your reality, what is your own identity, redefining our society according essentially to personal taste or vice or thoughts or excess or simply the whim of the day. This is why we have so many of the things that are occurring in our world today where we just say, I can identify as a female, though I'm a male, and I can identify as they, even though I'm singular he. I mean, this makes no sense. Uh, in Melbourne, Australia, recently, a young lady identified as a cat, and her school has decided that rather than infringe upon her right to identify as she sees herself, they treat her as if she is a cat, as long as she doesn't create a disturbance in the classroom. You see, this is the absurdity of truth that is defined by our own personal standards and our own personal ideas. That evening, uh, I offended all of them, every single one of them. As one of them went on to just say how, you know, I believe that you are who you envision yourself to be, that if you believe strongly enough that you can fly like Superman, you could fly like Superman. Now, maybe she'd had one martini too many, I'm not sure, but I couldn't let that pass. And I looked at her and I said, well, then prove it. So we're six stories up. You don't believe in absolute truth. It's all relative. Prove it. Jump. She just stands there and looks at me. Say, you're full of it. You do believe in absolute truth. Gravity, for example. 100 times out of 100 times, when you jump, that's what's going to happen. There is absolute truth in God's creation and in God. That evening, I quoted some scripture to them that just set it off, man. It was interesting. Um, my, my poor lady from my church, she never invited me back to a dinner party again. <laughs> and, and in my defense, this was 20 years ago when I was a lot, well, whatever, okay. <laughs> so, but that night, I referred back to this passage and others. See, Jesus makes an, there's an incredible statement made here in verse nine. Jesus is the true light that shines on every man. Full stop. Jesus is the true light that shines on every man. What does that mean? By true light, it's saying that Jesus is the genuine, real truth, not something that is deceptive or delusional. Satan appears as a minister of light, but he's lying. Human, humans come up with philosophies and men purport to be right about things, but they are in error. Jesus is the true light in that he's genuine and real. He's the true light in that he is the ultimate truth. He's absolute truth. The truth of the Old Testament, of Moses, the prophets, the truth that John proclaims, John the Baptist, it all culminates in ultimate truth, Jesus. This is who he is. He's God, disclosing himself to us. He's the eternal standard by which we are all measured. All other truth is but a shade of truth, just as the moon is a shade in comparison to the sun. 
He is the true light who gives light to every man. Now that could be referring to the fact that inside each and every one of us, because we're created in the image of God, we have a conscience that knows basic right from wrong. That could mean, that could be the meaning, but I I think the primary meaning here is linked to that word light, which is the Greek word photosai. It means to light up, to bring into the light, to shed light on something, to make something visible. I believe that what it's referring to is that when the light of Jesus shines upon every man and the glare of that light of Jesus, humans are clearly revealed for what's actually going on. And when that light shines upon a person and they stand in the glare of Jesus, the response is one of two. Most people reject the light of Christ. We see this in verse 10. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. Those who should have known better, the Israelites who for 2,000 years were waiting for the promised seed that had been given to Abraham when God made the covenant with him. They had been waiting for this promised seed that would come and redeem the people from their sin. And yet when he comes, they reject him. The promised Messiah arrives and they want nothing to do with him. Why? Because he didn't fit their conception of truth of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They were looking for the conquering king who would give them political freedom. They weren't looking for the suffering savior, the Messiah who would lay down his life for their sins, not at all. The idea of a suffering Messiah was a stumbling block to the Jew, it's foolishness to the Gentile. And even to this day, the world at large refuses to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. Why is this? The text says it's because he's the light. Ladies, you should be able to understand this, this idea of photose and bring out into the light. You, I think most ladies, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make an assumption. I probably shouldn't make an assumption because I'm only married to one, but if you're like my wife, you get dressed in the morning and you look in that mirror and you're just beautiful, at least by my standards, just beautiful. I married a beautiful woman. The mirror says, Jerry, you are right. It looks beautiful. But then my wife, and ladies, many of you do this, you have a, there's something wrong, something wrong. You pull out this lighted magnifying mirror, right? And you, you hold that up in front of you and that face that was so beautiful in your normal bathroom mirror now looks like the, landscape of the moon because of what it reveals, right? It reveals everything. It just magnifies your face and all the little flaws and and then out comes the drawers and everything. Okay, ladies, if you have one of these magnifying mirrors, I want you to raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, come on. Come on, ladies. There, There we go. Now you're being honest with yourself, okay? Some of you are saying, no, I'm too smart. I want nothing to do with that thing. Good move. Good, yeah, good move. Good move, yeah, good move. I would suggest to you that that is exactly what Jesus does to humanity. Jesus is holding up a lighted, magnifying mirror up in front of humanity, in front of each and every one of us, and it reveals the depth and depravity of our sinfulness. 
And as a result, we want nothing to do with him. Last week, I read John 3, 19. Now I want to read it again and include verse 20. The judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. Now notice verse 20. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. This is why people reject Christ and run from him. This is why the religious world will not receive him unless they can remake him into their own image. That's why on that night, you had people who were taking a little bit of the golden rule and get a little bit of the good commandment and a little bit of the beatitudes and they were combining it with some principles from Hinduism and from Buddhism and from Islam and from secular philosophy, creating their own little mishmash of truth which was real for them because they don't want to face the harsh glare of who Jesus is and what he says. So they remake him. Men don't want to acknowledge Jesus because of the absolutism of who he is and his teachings. People will only receive Jesus if they can do so on their own terms unless God does a miraculous work in their life. Most people reject Jesus in, light, uh, in, in view of the light. A few receive Jesus. Verse 12 says, but to all who received, believed him and accepted him. I said, but all who receive him. Some of your translations will say receive, accepted, same concept. There's a couple of conditions that are implied in this verse of, that is, must be in place in order for us to receive and accept Jesus. First, we have to receive him personally and individually. Now, most of you, as I look across the audience, I imagine most of you, you have a certain amount of money in a bank somewhere. And your bank is worth millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And some of your money is in that bank. But just because your bank is worth millions and millions and millions of dollars and you have money there, it doesn't mean that you are a millionaire. You don't believe that you're a millionaire simply because your bank has millions of dollars. The only way that your bank having millions of dollars could impact you as if those millions of dollars were in your personal bank account, which would then change your net worth. You get that? I mean, we all, that's kind of common sense. Well, in the spiritual realm, the same thing is true. We can be born into a Christian nation, or a nation that was more Christian, but is still seen by the world as a Christian nation, born into a Christian family. You can be well involved in a Christian church, but if you don't make Christ and receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that doesn't make you a Christian just because you're in a Christian church or just because you're in a Christian home. Children, you can be raised in a Christian home and your mom and dad are Christians. That doesn't make you a Christian. There must be this personal interaction with Jesus in your life, in your heart, where you receive and accept him as your Lord and Savior. This condition is necessary. It's this condition to receive him 
not as we conceive of him, not as we make him out to be, not based off of, I like this, I don't like that. We have to receive him as he is offered to us in the gospel. He's offered to us as the ultimate, absolute prophet, priest, and king of the universe. We're gonna unpack that in a second. Last week, we, we saw how he's offered to us as someone who is 100% God and 100% man. He has to be 100% man in order to stand in humanity's place when he faces the judgment of God. He has to be 100% God in order to endure the wrath of God. Only God could endure that wrath. As Charles Spurgeon once wrote, to all who doubt the deity of Christ, he says, a savior who is not divine can be no savior for us. He has to be 100% human and 100% God at the same time. We receive Jesus. It has to be personal. It has to be based upon who he actually is And the way we receive him is by believing in his name, the passage says. Now, what does that mean? That word belief is not referring to simply accepting who Jesus is or agreeing with who Jesus is at the intellectual level. It it, it includes that, but it's much more. Let's, Let's go back to that concept of prophet priest and king. It means believing in in what those ideas represent and agreeing with them and owning them into your life. So for example, when we talk about believing that he is the ultimate prophet of God, we're saying, I agree that everything Jesus says is truth. It is reality. And I'm staking my life upon that as the Scriptures tell us in John chapter 3, verse 36, all who believe the Son have eternal life, but those who do not believe in the Son do not have life, but the wrath of God abideth upon them. It means believing in that message that it is truth and that he is truth incarnate. As our priest, we are relying upon his sacrifice to redeem us and not our own works As John 10 tells us, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. And we are resting and trusting in his death on our behalf on the cross to atone for our sins. He's the perfect high priest of God and he's the absolute king of all that is, as we sung about earlier this morning. He is King Jesus, whose kingdom has been inaugurated and it's growing and thriving and one day it will all be fulfilled at his second coming. It means that we are giving him our allegiance and bowing before him as Lord and Master. So when we receive Jesus and by believing in his name, we're saying, I agree with what he says about sin and salvation and the world. I understand that I cannot save myself. I must rely upon Jesus alone and his sacrifice on the cross as our high priest. And I appropriate this by bowing before my Lord and turning my life over to him and giving him my allegiance just as Thomas In that upper room, when the resurrected Jesus appeared, and he had been doubting what all had said, but when Jesus appeared, he bowed before him and he said, my Lord 
and my God. That's what it means to believe in his name, receiving him as presented in the gospels. Some of you have seen this at different times through the years. I return to this little illustration to help us, but I want, I want it to be crystal clear as to what it means to believe because the churches today, as they have been through history, have been filled with people who have a form of belief, but that belief is enough to condemn them. Remember, Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, on that day when I return, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out devils in your name? And I will turn to them and say, depart from me, ye accursed. I never knew you. Was that because, were they lying? Were they saying, no, they, they, oh yeah, I believe. But they didn't understand what the Bible means by belief. So let's take this chair for example. I believe that this chair can hold me up. I believe it. I look at this and you know what? Because I'm a rational human being and God has given us minds and he doesn't expect blind belief and he doesn't expect gum on the bottom of the chair. But anyway, um, <laughs> you look at it and you know what? That, this no looser, I can take, that is a good chair. In fact, we culled through hundreds of chairs, you know, we threw out all the bad ones. That is, I believe it. I believe that chair will hold me up. That is a form of belief that is intellectual assent. It is scholastic knowledge making a reasonable conclusion. Yep, I believe it. That is not what the Bible means when it says that you believe in Jesus. Yeah, it certainly includes examining Jesus and concluding, yes, I believe that he is God in the flesh. It includes the intellectual aspect, but it doesn't stop there. Some people, when they say, I believe in Jesus, this is what they mean. I'm trusting in Jesus for my salvation. Absolutely. I'm trusting in Jesus. Yeah, buddy, I believe, I believe in Jesus. Absolutely. And, and what are they actually saying? They're saying, I, I believe in Jesus plus something else that involves my self-effort. I'm, I'm making sure I'm a good person. I'm going to church. I'm not kicking the, the dog. And, and I'm, you know, all of those nice things. That's one form of belief. That's belief plus works. That is Jesus plus works. And Jesus plus anything is nothing, folks. It's nothing. And then there's this belief. I believe this church, this chair will hold me up. Yep, I believe it. And if I'm wrong, I'm staking my whole life on it. Broken leg or something. I mean, if I'm wrong, it's gonna be catastrophic, right? I am all in, trusting in him alone. This is what biblical belief is. This is what it means to believe, receive him and believe. So most people, they reject him. Some people, a few, remnant, except there's a final thought in this passage this morning. I want to give it to you by way of a takeaway truth. It is only due to God's initiative that we receive Christ and become his children. Verse 12 says, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. 
They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from a human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that there is a tension between verses 12 and 13. The tension is reflected in that word accepted or received. It's the, it's the Greek word lambano. And let me re- read to you the definition from a, a popular concordance. It means to receive or accept an object or benefit for which the initiative rests with the giver, but the focus of attention in the transfer is upon the receiver. Did you catch that? The initiative is with the giver, but the focus of attention on the transfer is upon the receiver. And you, you see this tension in these verses. The vast majority of the attention seems to be focused on us, the receivers of the gift. But behind this word is the understanding that the only reason why we receive the gift is because of the initiative of the giver. And that tension is reflected in verse 13, when it says they are reborn, not with a physical birth, resulting from human passion or human plan or desire, but a birth that comes from God. This is the tension that we see throughout the scriptures, that dynamic between God's sovereignty and salvation on the one hand and human responsibility on the other. And these two truths, they go right through the pages of the scripture in perfect harmony and perfect parallel. Where we get into problems is because there is a tension between these two that frankly, we cannot solve with our human finite minds, but we try. (laughs) And when we try, we tilt towards one side or the other in an unhealthy way, and then we get out of whack. The scriptures do not call upon us to resolve the tension. The scriptures call upon us to accept the tension, to believe that God and his ways and his sovereign plan, his thoughts are so far above our thoughts and higher than our thoughts that of course we should not be able to understand every jot and tittle of it. In fact, if our God does not leave us scratching our heads at some point when it comes to these ideas, then are we really worshiping the true God or are we worshiping a God that's in our image? So this truth is here, tension is here. But when you look at these tension, this tension and you dig into what it means, oh, it, it, two things happen. First of all, it humbles us. It's very humbling to understand that if it were not for God's grace expressed to us in his sovereign choice as to who he would redeem, every single one of us would continue to reject Jesus and we would die condemned to a devil's hell. If it were not for that sovereign grace that he chooses to pour out upon his people, every one of us would be just like the Israelites who rejected him in his first incarnation. This rebirth that the passage refers to, it's vital to understand it. This rebirth that occurs is not due to human effort. In other words, Jesus tells 
Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be reborn, like this passage is talking about. Uh, there's, a, there's an idea that, oh, the way I am born again is that I believe in Jesus and trust in him as my Lord and Savior. So I trust in Jesus and then I am born again. No, that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is actually saying the opposite. You must first be born again before you can trust in Jesus. And that order is really, really important. Because when you understand that God's verdict upon us as he expresses in Romans chapter three, verse 10, there's no one who's righteous, no, not one, no one who is good, no one who does one good thing. God says, not one of you seek after me. Your hearts are open cesspools of sin and depth of depravity. That's how we are born into this world. We are dead in our sins. Dead people don't seek after God. Dead people do not believe what Jesus says. Dead people only want one thing, their own sinful desires. That's the bad news of the gospel. That's why being born again has to be according to a birth that comes from God, his plan. God through the Holy Spirit brings us to life and in bringing us to life and giving us a heart that now can respond to spiritual truth and he gives us this gift of faith, we are drawn to Jesus like moth to a flame and we receive him. And we look at that and go, yes, I received, I believe, and the attention is on the response, but none of that would take place if it were not for the initiative, the initiative of the giver. That the giver gives us a heart that can then believe. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, no, you can't be born again through your own effort or through any other form of physical means and think yourself, it must be a work of the Holy Spirit that does that. It's incredibly humbling to understand that in our natural state, every single one of us would reject Jesus. Every single one of us. 100 times out of 100 times, we would say crucify him in our natural state. Paul says, however, in Titus chapter three, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's what it means to be born again. And they are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. How humbling, and at the same time, how honoring. Because with this rebirth, we now become children of God. We have the authority to say, I'm a son of God, I'm a daughter of God, and with that right comes privileges. We can come to God whenever we want to. We have open access to our heavenly Father. We have his grace and his mercy and his love that far outpaces the continuing sin that rears its heads in our lives. We have his sustenance, his promise for guidance and for protection, a new nature, a new life, freedom that we sang about this morning. These all come because we are now children of God and most importantly, an inheritance that is eternal 
that will never rust or rot away. When you receive Christ, you are authorized to call yourself God's children and there is no higher honor in this entire universe. You know, many years back, that same church, no, no, excuse me, church before that church, two churches before that. <laughs> Sorry, got mixed up there for a second. Uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't Amelia Island. Um, it was in central Florida and I was pastoring a church that had the distinction of being the first church where Billy Graham ever preached a sermon. Uh, in fact, there, there were people there, uh, mostly ladies, older ladies, who remember that day. He preached his first, in fact, he didn't just preach his first sermon there, he preached his first three sermons there, all in 10 minutes, and then sat down. And uh, I, I asked some of those older ladies what that night was like, and they said, oh, the sermons were horrible. But we didn't care because he was so handsome, you know? <laughs> you go, Billy. Anyway, they was coming up on one of his anniversaries and the Billy Graham crusade was gonna do a Christmas special and they came and said, hey, we'd like to do a thing on the church and we'd like to interview you. And I mean, we spent hours preparing, being filmed, talking, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, I mean, just hours and hours of work. Finally, the night comes when the Billy Graham Christmas special comes in. So Catherine and I are sitting there. I think uh, Jacob wasn't born yet. MJ was small. And you know, we, we watched the entire Billy Graham uh, Christmas special. It was, it was incredible. And I was on screen for the grand total of zero minutes. I was like, I told that guy to use a wide angle lens and he didn't listen to me. They didn't use any of it. I was like, oh man, that didn't change my opinion of Billy Graham. And how much I respect him as a man of God in his ministry as an evangelist. Well, back in 1996, shortly before that special was done, uh, he was honored at the National Day of Prayer. He and his wife, Ruth, were given the Congressional Gold Medal. That's our nation's highest honor. The first to receive it was George Washington. And in his acceptance speech, there's application to our passage this morning. He said in that speech, and that acceptance speech. I am especially grateful my wife, Ruth, and I are both being given this honor. No one has sacrificed more than Ruth has or been more dedicated to God's calling for the two of us. However, I would not be here today receiving this honor if it were not for an event that happened to me many years ago as a teenager on the outskirts of Charlotte, North Carolina. An evangelist came to our town for a series of meetings. I came face to face with the fact that God loved me, Billy Graham, and had sent his son to die for me. He told how Jesus rose from the dead to give us hope of eternal life. I never forgot a verse of scripture that was quoted. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1, 12. What he meant that I must respond to God's offer of mercy and forgiveness. I had to repent of my own sins and receive Jesus Christ by faith. When the preacher asked people to surrender their lives to Christ, I responded. I had little or no emotion. I was embarrassed to stand with a number of other people when I knew some of my school peers saw me, but I meant it. And that simple repentance and open commitment to Jesus Christ changed my life. If we have accomplished anything at all in life since then, it has only been because of the grace and mercy of God. You know, we started the passage this morning, the message this morning, 
It was telling us about John the Baptist who testifies of Jesus. And we end with, I think, probably the modern world's most respected evangelist who says the same thing about Jesus. So let me close by asking you this question. If you were given the opportunity to testify of what Christ means to you, who he is in your life, what would it be? Would it be, I believe he's God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe in who he says he is, but you haven't actually received him as Lord, relying upon him as the absolute high priest. Or perhaps you would say, I believe in Jesus, but you've been living as if it requires your good life and your religious activity. And what you're really trusting in is Jesus plus something else in order to have eternal life. Perhaps you would say, I'm all in. I'm not gonna repeat it and stand back up on the chair, but Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm committed to him. And then perhaps some of you this morning might say, you know, I've never committed, but I would like to. And the good news of the scripture is that the Bible tells us that the day is the day of salvation. You can come to Christ where you sit right now, just as you are right now. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get your act together. You simply must believe what he says, rest on his sacrifice alone, and bend the knee and come before him and give him your allegiance as Lord and Savior. And so as I close in prayer this morning, if that's you, I hope that as I pray, you will simply pray and just ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to acknowledge him and receive him and tell him you want to receive him into your life and follow him as his disciple. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that it means to us that you are God, that you are our Savior, that you came and took human flesh and now dwelt among us, living that life that we're to live, dying as our perfect high priest, being the sacrifice so that the wrath of God could be turned from our sins. Lord, I pray for the one who has yet to understand this basic gospel truth. This will only happen, Lord Jesus, if your spirit, the Holy Spirit, opens eyes and gives a new heart that is empowered to believe. But we would ask on behalf of those who don't know you, who maybe are here or who are listening online or our family members who we love, who continue to reject him, we would ask that you would give them a heart that loves you, that wants to bow the knee to you, to follow you. Would you do this, Lord Jesus, because we love them Would you do this for their good, but ultimately, would you do it for the glory of your own name? In your name, we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.